So, Doug, have you done some podcasts? I'm assuming you have. I've done a ton of media. This will be my first podcast I've ever agreed to do because of you. <laughs> okay, we got that down. We're recording that. That's on. Hey, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of The Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, we've got a special treat for you. I want to highlight a woman who's made a massive impact on our company. I had a lot of fun sitting down to chat and learn more about her background and path to Nordstrom. You may even already know her name or follow her on Instagram, but if not, I think you're going to love getting to know our Vice President of Creative Projects, Olivia Kim. We were starting to import fashion from Brazil by carrying it in our suitcases and bringing it back. And then we would meet those fashion... Is there like something illegal about that? Or like, I mean, uh, it's probably not legal to <laughs> be buying stuff in Brazil, putting it in your suitcase. suitcase, and then selling it. But before that, join me for my conversation with another incredible leader, CEO of Commerce at Fanatics, Doug Mack. Right now, you happen to be wearing a piece of clothing with a sports team logo on it. Odds are you got it through Fanatics. Even if you remember buying it at a stadium or a university store, it's highly likely that it came to you directly by way of Doug Mack himself. Brought on board as CEO in 2014, Doug has leveraged his extensive background in business and technology to transform the rising sports apparel brand into the global platform it is today producing and distributing licensed gear for every major sports league and association you can think of. Now just take a second and try to wrap your brain around just how many sports there are and how many teams and individual players being bought and traded, retiring, then unretiring. You get my point. You can start to see just how complicated this business really is. But Doug really doesn't want you to think about any of that. He just wants you to get your gear as quickly as possible so you can get out there and start waving your team flag. Doug says he is obsessed with the fan experience and being able to marry his innovative business practices with his love for sports has made him and Fanatics very successful. So let's get into it. Hey, look, I'm super excited to have Doug Mack here from Fanatics on the podcast. Now, Doug, I got to tell you, I think this is such an interesting example of kind of a new way of how commerce is being done. I mean, what I, you know, I kind of reading through it and the official thing is the leading global digital sports platform. It's a, it's a sports license apparel business, which is, you know, maybe a little easier to get your head around, but I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about Fanatics and, you know, just what your company's all about. Yeah, great. Let me give a little bit of context. So I joined Fanatics in 2014. I think the Fanatics that you know is really the global leader in licensed sports merchandise. So if you're a fan of a professional sports team, of your favorite college or university, of a player like Russell Wilson or Steph Curry, that we've got merchandise for you to really show your passion and celebrate your fandom. And what's really special about our business, there's multiple pieces. The first is we're not a single site, fanatics.com. What we really do is we go to wherever the sports fan or the fan of school may show up. That can be on the NFL shop. That could be going to the Seattle Seahawks site and clicking shop and you'll find your way into a Fanatics experience. And then ultimately, the merchandise, we have rights from leagues and colleges that allow us to produce merchandise. That can be jerseys, headwear, hoodies, t-shirts, all forms of apparel, as well as hard goods, such as homewares, banners, pennants, backpacks. And the thing that's really hard about our category is really sales momentum is heavily driven by team performance. 
So if a team's having a great year, there's incredible momentum. So by us having the rights to produce merchandise, we can quickly chase into that merchandise. And if a team's having an unexpectedly poor year, we don't get caught long with having the merchandise for the wrong teams. It's funny you say that because I was thinking about you guys when the NCAA basketball tournament's on. So if it's regular pro football season or Major League Baseball or NBA, it's a long season where you, over time, you see who the best couple of teams are and you got a reasonable bet of who's going to end up being the champion. In the NCAA tournament, you get a bunch of, <laughs> you got teams that no one knows anything about all of a sudden win a game or two. And then you got to come up with merchandise. So did that literal example happen with you guys this year on the NCAA tournament this year? You're scrambling to make St. Peter's merchandise or whatever it was? It happens every year. And therefore, we're probably the one company who doesn't scramble because the business model is built for responding very quickly. So when the University of Georgia wins the national championship in football, that wasn't expected. They're up against Alabama. They get a big win. We then immediately can produce a huge range of merchandise that we publish within minutes after the game, often before we've even produced the merchandise typically. And then we're taking orders. We're looking at demand curves associated with what happens in the first hour, three hours, day. And that allows us to know what the next 30 days are going to look like. We actually, in the first quarter, averaged probably one championship moment in sports every other day. I mean, it's happening constantly. People take for granted Tom Brady retired, then Tom Brady unretired. That becomes what we call a hot market, that in that moment, we need to actually fire up the presses and have lots of merchandise available knowing that he's actually back in the league. So that is what makes our business different than every other business on the planet that sells stuff. How does it take for that stuff to get made and literally get shipped to a customer in that example that you were talking about? So that night. So what we'll do is we will get to a final two eventually in any sport, whether it's the Super Bowl, the World Series, the NBA championship. So we'll basically stage domestically through our own physical manufacturing and through partner manufacturing. The designs are done for each team. And then basically once the final buzzer sounds and you have a champion, we immediately begin producing. And I'm talking hundreds of product choices still. So this isn't just like a championship T-shirt. This is going to be the full range of hoodies, sweatshirts, headwear, fleece, all kinds of things, uh, commemorative hard goods that would allow you as a sports fan to celebrate the victory. And the core of the business is that notion of you have you know, 30 to 32 sports teams in all the pro leagues. You have hundreds of colleges. You have global soccer clubs. You have interesting sports, rugby, golf, auto racing. Whatever somebody is passionate about, we look to be always in stock on what we call MVP, our most valuable products, that they can come and find the product they want available in their size, ready to deliver to them. So it's one part agility, but it's also this rolling thunder of, Throughout the course of a year or a season, we can pick up on cues on momentum and just be in stock on what people want. Yeah, it's, you know, you, you talk about it being a digital business, which implies it's largely an e-commerce business. But the fact is, you're producing and you're running these shops, like these team stores, for example, in a stadium or, or what have you. Is, is that correct for every big sport you can imagine? Correct. What we really found over time with our model is our our passion, our mission is to fuel fan passion and to create connections amongst fans. And that doesn't mean everybody has to come to fanatics.com. Somebody may go to the Golden State Warriors venue and the team store there is operated by Fanatics and the Golden State Warriors e-commerce shop online is also operated by Fanatics. So much like in your business, we create an omni-channel experience that we're one face to the fan, whether they wanna buy at the team store that night take home a Steph Curry jersey as part of a great night you had at the game, or whether you just want to focus on the game and go home that night, you'll have an email that said Warriors win, celebrate your win, and then you can go ahead and order online with that product. So really, the majority of our business is e-commerce, but we operate over 50 venues. We operate hundreds of sports events. These are things like the MLB All-Star Game it basically lasts for four days, and we'll go in and do temporary retail in a venue like that, or the Kentucky Derby, and then we sell wholesale. So we've got great retail partners ranging from Dick Sporting Goods to Academy Sports to Kohl's, where we provide portions of our assortment that we sell 
on a wholesale basis, depending on the segmentation of the channel. So it's it's complicated. It is extremely complicated. And it's funny, I learned this years ago. I, I've been in Silicon Valley for a long time. Our job to the fan is to take all this complexity, keep it under the hood, and they just get what they want. They love their team. They love their school. They love a player. There's a big moment that happens, and they just need to go to wherever they want to go to get that product, and we need to have it for them, and then we need to get it to them and make them really excited. I've said to my team, I feel, and I think you're in the same way with your business, we're not disposables. We're not selling you know, hair gel and deodorant. We're selling products that when people get, they're really excited about. You know, If you're a huge fan of the Kraken, who are a great addition to the NHL, and you go to your first game, and you want to represent the team, and you want to have a great hoodie, when you order that, and it arrives at your house, and you get it, it's a little bit of a Christmas Day moment of you're like, ugh, I'm super excited to get this. And so I really feel that that is part of what fuels. It's really complicated, but we never want the fan to realize it can be so hard when a player gets traded, you know, Messi, one of the greatest soccer players of all time, surprisingly transfers to PSG, a great global soccer club, and immediately so many people in France and beyond want Messi product now. And we just want fans to take for granted that's possible. We don't burden them with the complexity of what it takes to actually make that happen. Well, you know, I think that's actually the, the key to business. We, we were talking about today in a meeting that I was in, it's like, we got to figure out how to make it simpler for customers. And uh, you guys have done such an amazing job of doing that. I think it's cool that you're explaining this. But, you know, as this exists today, I mean, you're a $5 billion plus company. You've got a lot of different things going on. I'm just kind of curious if you to rewind the tape of where this all started. I, I know you're not the founder and stuff and you came there you know, after several years of doing business, but this had to have started much more modestly. You bet. And I can take you through kind of a little bit of the founding and what it was like when I arrived. So really the company, the original fanatics.com was founded in the late nineties out of the back of a mall store in Jacksonville, Florida, where they were beginning to find that they had this great college football and college team assortment that they were able to out of the back room, basically sell online to people across the country. And they started to build a nice e-commerce business. In parallel, there was an entrepreneur in Pennsylvania, Michael Rubin, who was running a technology services company called GSI Commerce that was operating some of the official league stores like NASCAR and the NFL shop where they were providing e-commerce services. Michael ultimately bought Fanatics.com. And so then he had all that together in 2011, 2012. He and I knew each other from way back. He reached out to me and said he was looking to bring in a CEO to run the business. So I joined in 2014. And at the time, Fanatics effectively was a sub $800 million domestic only e-commerce company, 100% selling other people's product. But what I felt with Michael is we weren't a brand. To your, you know, a lot of people now have heard of Fanatics, so nobody had heard of Fanatics in 2014. We needed to have our ability to produce our own merchandise for the agility you and I have been discussing. And honestly, the technology was not up to snuff at the time. And so I built here in Silicon Valley, a, really a tech center for data analytics, performance marketing, that we could go and make sure that if we were going to operate a storefront for a league, a team, a school, we needed to be able to do that dramatically better than any individual entity could do on their own. And so you kind of fast forward into where we're at now. You know, we're over $5 billion now in global revenue. We are global. About half of what we sell, we produce on our own. So we, we became heavily vertical. And I think Fanatics is a real brand that fans connect with, whether they're shopping on fanatics.com or you probably see, if you watch sports, the TV media, that'll say shop NBA store, a Fanatics experience, which is a bit of that seal of approval, that intel inside that you know if you're shopping one of those experiences, you're getting the full faith and support of Fanatics will stand behind. So what you're talking about there um, reminds me, I want to ask a little bit about know your background and everything and you know you've done different types of jobs you worked for GE you worked at McKinsey you've been in the tech world you worked for Adobe and then you got into retailing when you were at um, One King's Lane and you know you're a guy that while you you didn't create the Fanatics company you took it from a, a small place and broadened its scope in so many ways that it's almost been like 
a, a real entrepreneur's story. So I'm just kind of curious, so your personal journey, you know, when you were a young person going to college and stuff, did you envision that you would be doing the kinds of things you're doing now? Or what did you think you were going to be doing when you graduated from college? Yeah, I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. I went to school in the Northeast. Uh, my first job out of school couldn't have been more traditional, general electric management training programs. And then my next one after that couldn't have been more traditional, McKinsey and Company Strategy Consulting. So kind of in that phase of life, I certainly all I kind of knew was this traditional kind of corporate larger world path. And then sometimes life can be a little bit of a random walk of, I met my wife, we had a lot of cold Connecticut winters. Um, we decided that we were young, we we're just getting married. Uh, California seemed like an amazing place. Neither of us had a connection to it. And we kind of felt the internet world bubbling. This was 1997, 1998. And we we took the leap and we moved out here without knowing anybody. And we just got into the Silicon Valley culture. My wife went and worked for a startup that she just couldn't have been having more fun. I transferred out here with McKinsey and was watching how much fun she was having in startup land and said, you know, I'm going to go give it a shot at doing something more entrepreneurial. So that was really my crossover and then got the courage to start my own company. Um, and I started a tech company that ultimately was called Scene7 that provided digital imaging capabilities to e-commerce companies. And it's where I built relationships throughout the retail world. So, but would you consider yourself a tech guy or are you like a business person? For I mean sure business. And I think once I crossed over and became part of a business to business tech company, that's where I really got immersed in the power of how technology and data transforms businesses. And I really developed a strong thesis to say, I don't think any company can be a market leader without elite technology and data. And every company I've been with since I've looked at us as a technology company, no matter what we're doing, whether that was Scene7, which was a technology company, Adobe, who bought us, is clearly a technology company, One Kings Lane, who you know in the home decor space, and now Fanatics. And a play I've continually run is have the best technologist, the best technology, and the best data and not only does that impact your consumers, but it actually impacts your employees. It can take jobs that are otherwise relatively uninteresting and actually make them high impact jobs. And so that to me has been a common thread. But to your, your focus on you know how does one become successful, my take is it starts, and you know this well, you have to have great company culture where you can attract and motivate and retain the best talent. So I've always focused on culture. You have to have clear priorities. So everywhere I've gone, you know, companies that do too many things does none of them well. So it's like, what are the most important things we're working on and how does everyone get behind that? And you have to innovate. And, you know, just kind of looking at what other companies do and trying to do a version of it, you're really not going to ever get in the first place. And so that's what I focused on. And I was super blessed for the Fanatics opportunity to come along and find me because it happened, took me too long, and you probably had this for a long time, to marry my passion, which is I love internet businesses and I love sports. So then to start to get to come to work every day in an internet sports company just kind of got my energy to a whole nother level. And that's what it took. You know, what we've done here has been extremely hard and there's so much more to do to fully manifest the opportunity. You know, it's kind of a journey with no finish line. And it's great to come to work. If I, there was any one bit of advice I'd give is if you can find your place where your work aligns with a personal passion, you're going to do your best work. So I mean, did you grow up playing sports and stuff? And how, how were you able to parlay like a personal interest into something that really worked as a business for you too? Yeah, I grew up playing sports. I played baseball and tennis competitively through high school. I still, though, remember my first NFL game where my dad took me to a Cleveland Browns-Pittsburgh Steeler game, and that was pretty amazing to see the passion of fandom and be part of that experience, although it was really cold that day. I remember that, too. <laughs> that was my first impression, is that had to be cold. Yeah, I don't very know why cold. I thought that. But. A great hot chocolate, though. <laughs> still remember it. Um, we moved to Chicago, and I was lucky enough to grow up in the Michael Jordan era of the Chicago Bulls, so I still remember you know, getting tickets to go standing room only to watch him play and deliver multiple championships. When I went to college, I became a pickup basketball junkie and played every day. And I played ongoing basically weekly all the way through the beginning of COVID when it was taken away. And then I've now become a super avid golfer. Uh, my wife played college soccer. All three of my kids are competitive athletes across sports like basketball, soccer, rowing. And we're huge fans of Golden State Warriors, uh, San Francisco 49ers, San Francisco Giants. So both 
participating actively as well as being fans of teams through thick and thin. One kind of fun little story is because I grew up in Chicago and had that experience with the Jordan Bulls, when my wife and I moved to the Bay Area in 1997, first thing I did was get season tickets to the Golden State Warriors. And I don't know if you remember it, but at the time they weren't very good. And we stuck with it and we stuck with it. And my wife was like, are we really going to a game again? I'm like, yep, we're, we're going to the game. We're sticking with this team. And then eventually it paid out. Right. You get your We Believe era and they have a legendary upset of a number one team. And then you have a great new owner by the team and then they deliver three championships. So I've been through that emotional journey of the sports fan of we weren't good. We weren't good. We showed signs of life. We stuck with it. And then ultimately they achieved that championship moment and they did it again. And I think that's the beauty and fun of sport. And that's why I have so much passion around it, the resilience around it. And then I think it creates incredible dialogue. It's just, there's so many serious things about life these days. There's nothing like having a family group text around the game that's on tonight that it's just an easy topic to have really interesting banter around and it's entertaining. So yeah, and that's what we do at Fanatics. And that's why I'm so focused on the fan experience because it's hard. I haven't met anyone who's a bigger fan, and I understand that journey that we're on with people and they're trusting us to deliver for them. Yeah. So I, I think what might be interesting to people is like, okay, well, how do these guys know each other and why is this happening? And, and, and why is Nordstrom selling jerseys and caps and hoodies and you know things from sports teams? And, and I guess I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, our deal's always been we've got customers that we're trying to serve. And they have broad interests of things that they would like to buy from us if, if we had it. And since these things are apparel in nature, that's logical that we might carry it. So um, that's how we got connected with you guys. Look, they've got all these different products. And our customers would have to leave our site to buy something like this. And the obvious time is like you think about holiday or something. Oh, gosh, I want to buy something for my dad. Well, he went to school at UCLA or something. And so I want to buy him a UCLA sweatshirt. So now I got to leave Nordstrom.com and I got to go do this somewhere else. So what, maybe two years ago, we started talking about, hey, maybe there's a way that we could partner together in a way that, again, wouldn't typically make sense for what we do. But it's been really interesting for us to open up that door and see what's possible and to kind of learn and grow together. So I'm, I'm kind of curious your take on how that all started and how that partnership works. Totally agree. So I really think it started as things typically do as a conversation between our merchant teams. And we, in the end of the day, are in the apparel business. And people aren't like, I'm now buying hoodies that have UCLA logo on it versus I want to look at hoodies without a UCLA logo on it. They're just saying, I want an outfit that looks great. And the notion of being able to go to Nordstrom and say, hey, I want some to boot New York shoes that look great and some AG jeans, and then I want to throw a UCLA sweatshirt with. It makes all the sense in the world. You're exceptional, and I think your online site is exceptional. I love the outfitting concept of anytime you're looking at something and you scroll down, you see some designer and community-driven concepts that say this all would look well together. And I think that's something consumers struggle with of how do you put together a completed look. And I think for your business, if you actually are missing an entire category of product that your customers are interested in, you can't complete the look for certain segments of your customer base. And I think your team also recognized, having dabbled in this category in the past, how specialized it is. And you know, you might have a year that if you were using the traditional retail model, say, hey, we're just going to go buy a whole bunch of Chicago Bears merchandise and put it in our Chicago stores, but then the Bears miss the playoffs, and suddenly you're like, all right, now we've got a bunch of excess. That's not actually <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, we're, fami- we're familiar with that program. <laughs> that's not good. That's that's a high risk. That's what you're trying to stay out of in the retail business. So you're a very strong digital company, and we obviously, that's our center, to be able to say, we can basically have your team go through our catalog select what you feel will resonate with your consumers and for you then to be able to present that on nordstrom.com as part of a holistic assortment and outfitting it made all the sense in the world and for us what's exciting is you reach an affluent consumer a stylish consumer and we love to be part of servicing that consumer and so rather than for us to go out and uniquely acquire that customer on our own we're happy to service that customer in partnership with you and so it really, we were together at dinner right as it took off. I think for both of us, the beauty was 
from day one when this partnership turned on, it's not like you had to push it hard. It just started working. Yeah. So maybe you can explain a little bit how this works. So you know, for us, we're not taking all this inventory into stock. We're leveraging your wherewithal and ability to be able to ship in what we're calling a drop ship model. So maybe you can talk a little bit from your guys' perspective as a partner with us how that works. Yeah. And as we've talked about in our category, when you have 2.5 million SKUs, there are so many products to choose from that for us to try to say, let's apportion some of this and move this into Nordstrom warehouses, what's going to end up happening is first, we're going to have an extra touch in that, which creates cost. And secondly, we're never going to be able to perfectly predict what your customers are going to want. So we're always going to be wrong. It's just a matter of how much. So given we've got the $5 billion business in this space, let's just give you access to the entire pools of inventory. And if somebody wants to come in and they live in Seattle and they happen to be a Golden State Warriors fan and they see a really cool hoodie that they want, they can be on Nordstrom, they're a size medium, they click it, and then it'll ship from our Las Vegas warehouse to that customer versus it having to pass through an extra set of hands and be consolidated to get the product to the fan as quickly and cost-effectively as possible. So I am as the head of Fanatics Commerce obsessed with fan experience, we're just number one focus by far is just fan experience of how do we get just more love for product faster to the consumer and partnering with companies like yours that are high NPS companies help push us to say, how do we meet the high bar that you set in the marketplace? Yeah, I'm sure to a lot of people listening to this, like, you know, it's all kind of inside baseball, this idea about how commerce is done, the transactional nature of it. And customers don't care about who owns it or where it's getting shipped from. I mean, they just want to buy what they want to buy, where and when and how they want to buy it. And it's been fun to work with you guys to just kind of take it from a clean slate and say, I know the way this has traditionally been done in department store, but this is a, a new way of doing it because we can leverage technology, we can leverage you know capabilities, and we can do it in a partnership way where it's a win-win. And if we were talking 20 years ago, I don't think we would have even been able to dream up any of this stuff that we've just been talking about in the last 10 minutes. No, I agree. I actually, this was my sec. I was at a company previously that in the 2008 timeframe, we did have the conversation. It was just too early to try yeah. to figure out how do you get two e-commerce companies working together. So with time and the amount of scale of business that e-commerce has solved for it. And I'm, I'm sure you have listeners who are consumers and others who are business people. From a business person's perspective, when you think about what your team needs to do day in, day in, out, the magic to your business is storytelling. And so this just allows you to do better storytelling with your consumers that you have an additional entire category that, you know, opening day, 4th of July, you know, there's different times of year you want to tell different stories. And sports are so tightly woven into the global fabric of culture that if you're not telling any sports stories as a company, again, you're not the athletic company per se, you know, that you're out getting people trained to run the marathon, although you certainly offer that kind of product. But most of your customers are sports fans of some way, shape or form. So that would be too big of a void that your team couldn't tell stories around previously. And now you have a model that's scalable. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm kind of curious in your guys' journey over the last several years, if you think about perhaps what this category represented in the past, it was probably a bunch of guys wearing a jersey, right? I mean, it wasn't necessarily, and I'm kind of curious, like what percentage of your business do you think is done with women now? I'll tell you a couple things that are interesting. I think that's the biggest misperception about licensed sports merchandise. Uh, jerseys are meaningful, 20% plus of the business, but it's certainly not the dominant category. It's one piece to the puzzle. You'll be surprised to hear this. 50% of our shoppers are female. So we split 50-50. Now, she's not always buying for herself. Often she's buying for her spouse or for kids or for extended family. But it, again, kind of shows, I think, that we are aligned with the trend that the primary buyers in e-commerce are female. And that whether she's buying for herself or others that's a major part of our audience. So I think it's a really good question of this isn't just the guy's jersey business. That is certainly a nice part of the business, but it's the minority of the business. Yeah. So, I mean, you guys, you know, I, I remember in the sports kind of related industry several years ago when it was like, okay, we want to see how we can sell more things to women. The idea was what they would call shrink it and pink it, right? You would just take a guy's item and make it smaller and make it pink or something. And again, I was reminded when I went onto your site today to look at it that it's gone so far past 
that. So, again, I'm, I'm curious, these last several years, how you guys have figured out not only how you could sell to women as someone that might be buying it for a man, but that's buying it for themselves or a man buying it for a woman, that you're actually selling a lot of, of women's sports-related products in ways that's just not some big dude's jersey. It's actually something made for their fits, right? I totally agree with you. When I first got to Fanatics, it was one of my biggest concerns of what hadn't been done by the whole industry, not just Fanatics. The shrink it and pink it, or she ends up just having to buy a guy's item. It's just not right because this is an apparel market. And as you know, the casual apparel market is giant. And we need to think of ourselves in the casual apparel market, not in the sports merchandise market. And so we really, we put dedicated buying teams and development teams around women's merchandise to just say, everything matters in a business like ours, but if the merchandise isn't right, the rest of the business can't push it forward. You need at the core, merchandise is the fuel to the engine. One of my favorite things we've ever done is there's an amazing sports personality, Erin Andrews. You'll see her in NFL as a broadcaster, and at the core, she is a serious sports fan and has huge passion. And she herself was like, I'm so tired of this industry not offering me product I'm excited about. So she approached us and she said, I want to develop product with you. I want you to distribute it on Fanatics and NFL Shop and the like. And she personally, this wasn't just putting her name on it, helped design just an amazing line of products for a fan looking for cooler, tasteful women's product in the sports market. And I'll tell you, I personally, as I've gifted product, I'm sure you gift your own product quite a bit too. I probably gift her product more often than others because I just think it's so unique and interesting. And so it only works if you start from a center of amazing product. And because we're the market leader and because we have real scale of reach, we can go do these programs that can become 10 or $20 million programs and have the scale to go develop and make them happen. It's fascinating. So tell me, related to that, how products have evolved and all that stuff, how are you guys thinking about the whole metaverse, the whole NFT subject, you know, digital avatars, all that stuff? Because I got to imagine there's a huge application in terms of how someone wants to represent themselves online through a team or, or what have you. So tell me what you guys are working on on that type of stuff. Yeah, so uh, there's a real separation between those two topics. So I'm gonna start with the one I'm a little bit more excited about first, which is NFTs, where as sports fans, collecting has always been part of the passion, whether it's a souvenir you bring home from the game, whether it's a trading card of your favorite player, whether you get an autograph on a basketball from your favorite player, like collecting items, I still have a program that I got from the game that Michael Jordan hit the shot over Byron Russell to win the championship. And then he immediately retired. Like I'll never, that is a priceless memento for me from my sports experience of collecting. And so NFTs simply put in our space are digital collectibles where you can memorialize something, a championship, a player milestone, something of a new stadium is created that you want to own a little part of digitally. And I think in NFTs and sports, we've launched a business called Candy Digital. It's a very meaningful business. We also own Tops, the trading card company that has rights to create digital NFTs related to trading cards. And I believe over time that the opportunity for intellectual property-based NFTs where you have a digital item that you could buy at a scarcity, there's maybe only one of them, and you can retrade them as just another form of sports collecting that's going to so be- So give me an example of what one of those NFTs yeah, might be. I'm going to blow your mind with this, and you might get slightly jealous even with as hard as it is to run your business. So there's a very, very precious 1952 Mickey Mantle baseball card that, you know, very aged. And if somebody has maintained that at a nine or 10 rating over the course of the last 70 years, it's practically priceless. It's so valuable. We and our tops team have the rights to produce an NFT of that 1952 card. And so we recently released it as a one of one. One person was going to get the digital rendition of that 1952 Mickey Mantle card. And we put it open for auction on the web. 
and it's sold for just shy of $500,000 for that NFT. And so there's one person that owns the Mickey Mantle 1952 digital card. You know, I think next year we have to make that available only at Nordstrom. <laughs> I told you I was going to make you jealous. We did, we did a piece of that one, Doug. That's pretty good. We need more of that. And that when you come to things that are scarce and bespoke and, you know, Mickey Mantle is a legend and there's scarcity. There's one of these digital collectibles, just like there's very few of the original baseball cards left in good condition. And so that's a great opportunity. So we're excited about NFTs. And I also think marrying NFTs with physical product is interesting. So when the Atlanta Braves won the championship, if you purchase $250 worth of Atlanta Braves championship merchandise, we provided a commemorative NFT associated with the Braves championship. So again, a very small number of people actually own that NFT. And those become either part of your digital shoebox or something that you can trade over time that you're one of the people that got those and you, there's no more being created. So that's my riff on NFTs. Metaverse is not as here and now for me. I live in Silicon Valley. I've been here for 25 years. There are lots of things that get declared that everybody kind of tries to come up with their strategy around. This is something over the mid to long term, the notion of us having an even better virtual meeting than we're having right now, effectively feeling we're together. Those things will certainly happen, but this feels to me like trying to maybe make that market move a little faster than consumers are ready to adopt. So every time I get out of Silicon Valley, it reminds me of more of the real world, you know, what life, life is like across the states. And I just don't think a lot of average customers are thinking about trying to go spend time in virtual worlds right now. And let me give you a last couple of thoughts because I do spend a lot of time with strategic thinking. Timing really matters. And you and I, for better or worse, have been around this game for a long time. And, I, you know, I remember in 1998, there was Cosmo.com with great excitement and great venture capital, and it failed. But today we've got DoorDash. You know, Cosmo was just 20 years too early. The world wasn't ready for it. These things happen over time. You just have to have a really good sense of timing. And I don't think, let me be clear, I don't think Metaverse is a winner take all. I don't think one company owns it. I think an ecosystem will be created that creates opportunities for a company like ours over the mid to long term. But I don't think a window closes on us if you're not just pouring money into trying to shift consumer behavior today. Yeah. Well, that's good. There's only so many new things I can absorb over here, Doug. I mean, you know, like I said, it's complicated enough as it is. So we got to figure out what we're doing now. But I just give you so much credit, Doug. I mean, it's it's really impressive. And um, we're so appreciative to be a partner with you guys. And even those, you know, kind of early days trying to figure out what we can do together. It's just been a pleasure to get to know you a little bit and to learn more about your company. And I, I just so appreciate you being on the Nordy Pod here, too. Well, thanks for having me today. You know this because I've emailed you about it. I absolutely love your business, and I think your company is a role model for service. And I know there's legendary stories that go back decades over things that you've done for your customers. And I recently had a, an experience in your Stanford Town Center store that I emailed you about that I just said it's one of the best experiences I've ever had where somebody just took me under their wing and gave me the best possible experience you could have over the course of an hour. And by the way, as a result, I ended up walking out with a lot more than I planned to on the win because he did such a great job. And so it, it's a it's a win-win of it's great service, but then it's also good business for you too. And it really is great for us to get to partner with companies that we can learn from. So we're really excited to, to keep working together and growing the business together. That's great. Well, look at it. We owe you a dinner up here since we were down on your territory last time. So come on up. We'll have dinner. Maybe we can take in a game or something. There's uh, The Mariners are better this season. It'd be worth going and seeing them. If you haven't been to a game there, it, it's uh, that might be worth doing. So maybe we could do that. That's the beauty of sport. There's always hope. That it could be their <laughs> year. Right. All right. Hey, look, thanks so much, Doug, uh, and continued success to you. To you as well. Great catching up. Now we're going to switch gears and sit down with our Vice President of Creative Projects, Olivia Kim. She's been with us for a while now and added such a new and fresh perspective to the way we do business. Olivia is a super talented merchant who is well known and highly regarded in the fashion industry. I think you will find her journey and actual job she does at Nordstrom fascinating. We are all really fortunate to have her on our team.
Hey, Olivia. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. It's nice to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay, well, good. Um, you have kind of an unusual job and, and an unusual way of getting there. I mean, a lot most people that have jobs in merchandising at Nordstrom kind of grew up here and, and followed this kind of path. And so much of what you do here has never really been done before. And that was all kind of by design when you came here. So I want to talk a little bit about your job and kind of how it all works here. But I, I think it'd be great for people to understand more about you first. And so, as I mentioned, you're, you're not from Seattle. You didn't start here when you were 17 years old. And, you know, you had a life and a career and all these other things. And, and we met. How many years ago has it been now? About eight and a half years ago. About eight and a half years Mm -hmm. ago. And you and I met for breakfast, right? We met for breakfast. I remember what I was wearing. Okay, well, so take it from there then. I was wearing a short sleeve sweater and I kept thinking, shoot, should I not wear short sleeve and show tattoos? Pete Nordstrom. (laughs) You were concerned about the tattoos? A little bit. You know, I admittedly, I'd never worked for a big company. You know, my career, my experiences have all been with super small startups. They've really been focused around friends or friends partnering with friends and collaborating with friends. It's always been this super organic conversations that lead into these very organic projects and the projects become bigger and bigger in this completely unplanned sort of way. Um, I never thought that I'd be somebody who worked for a big company. You know, And when I mean big, I mean more than 10 people. Literally. Yeah, literally. So because here you are at the company of 70,000 people. 70,000, yeah. yeah. And the biggest takeaway that I had from that breakfast wasn't about how great the company is, how successful it was, you know, the number of dollars we do, it really was your inquisitive questions around how can we be better? How can we do something different? What do you think you could do for someone like us? I thought those questions were so sincere and so honest and unexpected. Like I wouldn't expect somebody who is, you know, running a publicly traded retail company to ask silly little me. Um, And I remember one of the last times that we talked before, you know, we officially kind of agreed to something. I was getting a tattoo with my two best friends. I was. We were getting (laughs) another best friend tattoo and I didn't like it. But, you know, you're sort of with your two best friends and they're like, let's do it. Let's do it. And so you're just like, okay, let's do it. You go first. And you saved me. So you went first? No, I went last. And you saved me from actually getting the tattoo (laughs) because I hung up and I was like, oh, shit, that was Pete. You know, and and I I was like I can't get the tattoo. Like my head's in another space. But I'm so, <laughs> so you're happy now looking back. You were yeah, saved because from they that both tattoo? erased those tattoos. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. that, then I feel good about that. Yeah. yeah. So were you a customer? Do you used to come shop at Nordstrom? Um, when occasionally, I was, occasionally, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. But I remember, like, you know, most of my shopping experiences are like, you know, shopping downtown on Broadway. You know, things like Canal Jeans and Vintage. And so you were kind of a sophisticated kid. If you're like going down to. Soho and like shopping at Canal Jeans. I remember when I first became a buyer and we go to New York, like you got to go look at Canal Jeans. So you're you're what like a teenager when you would go into the city and shop at these boutiques and Sixth, stuff. Sixth seventh grade because I was living in New Jersey at that time. My mom would drive us into the city and then she would just continue to circle around like up Lafayette. Like I'll Houston. see you in an hour. Go yes, ahead and just continue to circle around. <laughs> and my sister and I would run into Canal Jean, Urban Outfitters. You know there were a bunch of vintage stores all right there. Andy's Cheapies was right there. And then you know if we had time we'd bop down to Eighth Street to get like funky shoes and and things like that. So at what point is your you're rocking along, doing your thing, going to school and, you know, have like your first kind of teenager kind of job. My first teenage job was working at The Gap. Oh, so you were right from the get-go. You were in the yeah. Well, I worked at The Gap and I don't know, somehow or another I got connected with this mom and her daughter, you know, just continuing to show them things and be like, oh, what do you think about this? Or like, what do you think about this? You know, a sweater can also be worn around your neck. It could be worn across your body. It could be worn as a thing. It's a great accessory. And I just remember just... She's like, yes, yes, we'll take it, we'll take it. And it wound up being like the largest sale in that store's history. And then I quit the next day. I was like, I'm done. Why is that? It just wasn't for me. I felt so disingenuous. I felt like I was giving a part of who I was and sharing all about me and these things that I liked. Like I I wanted to be able to tell more of my story and tell more of who I was and why I like pink and green together or why, you know, you should roll up your jeans and wear two mismatched colored socks. But it didn't matter to them, and they just bought all of that stuff anyway. And then I was like, I, I can't do this. <laughs> and so, so what was your next job then? I didn't get a job again until like my first year of college, right? And that was just like waiting tables at a diner or something. Yeah. But I went to school. I went to NYU. I went to NYU as a biology major. I was pre-med. So how did you get back into the, the fashion thing? I needed a job when I graduated college. Instead with of, your biology degree. With my biology degree. Instead of going straight into <laughs> med school, 
I needed a break. I just felt it was so competitive. So I was just like, this is this just like isn't for me. I had some friends from college who were opening a little tiny store in the Lower East Side. And I was part of it. We were four people. We opened this teeny tiny store. What was the name of the store? Seven. Okay. Yeah. And so we're like, you guys all doing the buying and selling and everything. It was just like the four of you kind of yeah. doing it all. Buying, selling, cleaning, garbage, <laughs> PR. You know, we, we did it all. But again, we were friends from NYU. So we, we all knew each other. So it was fun. You know, you're behind a register playing like your friend's music and then the designers would come in and you'd just hang out with them. You'd smoke cigarettes, you know, you'd ride your bicycle in the store because nobody else was in the <laughs> store. You know, you kind of do like fun art projects and you're just vibing off of each other all the time. And, you know, you think about how young we were at that time. So you're like your early, early 20s and those formative years of being in New York. Everyone's broke. You know, everyone lives in, you know, these pretty shitty apartments in God knows what part of a borough. Um, but then you come together in this place that felt, it felt yours. It felt like, you know, it was really defined by the people and your friends. And it was just awesome. Was so was cool. was there ever any kind of conversation like with your mom? Like, oh my God, I thought you were going to be a doctor. You're a biology major. And now you're, you're hanging out in a shop, riding a bike around the shop. Like, what's going on? No, you know, I never was a fashion. I, I never considered myself to be a fashion person growing up. But I don't think it surprised my mom that I was surrounded by clothes and things. You know, growing up, I would always write down my outfits every day. I don't know why. But I had this, like, little twin star, like, Sanrio notebook. And every day I would write down my outfit. So is there a diary of your outfits? Uh-huh. Do you still have that? Yeah, I still have it. Oh, my God. But then also, I would always collect things. I, like, I loved collecting things and displaying those collections in my room. And about once a month, I would rearrange my room. I would re-merchandise my entire room. And my sister would do it too. And then we would play store. We would play that everything in our rooms was for sale. And my mom would buy us these receipt books with carbon paper. And we would have these like stamps and we would take all of the grocery bags and make them, you know, the shopping bag for the store. And we'd pretend to be each other's customers. We would even pretend to be mean customers sometimes, you know, we'd be like, you don't have this in stock. I'm never shopping here again, you know, and walk out. Um, But then at the end of the day, you know, we'd have to take all the returns back because we had nothing left to sell in our stores. Okay, so yeah, that experience in seven. So then, then what happened? Then that's when I met Carol and Umberto. Okay, so talk about that, Carol and Umberto. So I, I know that um, opening ceremony. So talk about opening ceremony, which w- was this little business that had ended up having this huge reputation. Yeah, Umberto and I had a lot of friends in common. You know, he was um, in San Francisco. Both he and Carol, they went to Berkeley. And when Umberto moved to New York, he and I had a lot of friends in common. And so a friend of ours connected us together. And we instantly bonded over karaoke, over Asian food. And it was through Umberto that I met his business partner, Carol. And they were opening a store called Opening Ceremony. And they asked me, do you want to come work in our store? So were you like employee number one? I was employee number one. I was working part-time, just a few hours, a few days a week um, to fill in the gaps because it was really manned and supported by friends. And very similar to some of my other experiences, it just continued to grow in this way that nobody had ever intended it. And to this idea that it's not that it's meant to be this business that's successful financially. It's meant to be a place where people can come together, share their ideas. You know, maybe we sell some clothes, but we're smoking cigarettes in the back. We're making little scrapbooks, Xerox zines. We're putting those zines out on the floor. We've run out of sweatshirts. Oh, let's call Umberto's mom to sew some more sweatshirts. Sewing sweatshirts at her house. Yep. We had a flocking machine downstairs in the basement. (laughs) We would flock things on blank sweatshirts that we would buy from Champion or whomever, switch out the label, put our label in. Oh, no, we don't have any more labels. Let's run up to the garment district. You know, it really was like there was no buying season. You know, you bought once you sold some things and you had some money to go out and buy new things. So, so when did opening ceremony then become a thing? Um, it probably started to really become a thing like 2008, 2009. And that's how many years into it? Four or five years into it. So did you guys start expanding your reach and it wasn't just kind of like friends in New York kind of brands and vendors, like when did you start like traveling to Europe and kind of becoming what a buyer really is? Yeah, I mean, the whole like sentiment around what opening ceremony was, it it really was a take off of the Olympics. This idea that we could visit a different country or a city and then bring back the culture of that city every year. So we were starting to import, you know, fashion from Brazil 
by carrying it in our suitcases and bringing it back. And then we would meet those fashion- Is there like something illegal about that? Or are you like, I mean, uh, it's probably not legal to <laughs> be buying stuff in Brazil, putting it in your suitcase, suitcase and then selling it, yeah. you know, for a markup. We did that with Javianas. And that was the first time Javianas had been sold in- The flip-flops. The flip-flops. And we could not stop selling those flip-flops. We went into their supermarket there called Extra, and we would just buy the Javianas off their shelves, stick it in our suitcase, and bring it back. Mark it up. When we so. sold everything, we'd go back to Brazil and buy some more stuff. You know, and then that was the year of Brazil. <laughs> but then you become friends with those Brazilian designers, and those Brazilian designers have friends in Paris, and those friends in Paris have friends in Germany. So then you go, then we wind up doing the year of Germany, and then you start to meet more designers. You bring back more of the culture. Um, you start representing in through your showroom a lot of these brands that, you know, they, they didn't have a foothold in the U.S., but now they had one retail U.S. store. Mm -hmm. But let me also wholesale you. I'm going to wholesale that brand to Bergdorf and Nordstrom and Barney's. And so, like, who was your first big kind of wholesale customer? I remember when Nordstrom bought it. Yeah. And I was like, wait, is that an extra couple zeros there? You know, because we were <laughs> used to small stores, you know, putting in orders of 12 and that was a lot. We were like, wow, 12 sweatshirts? We and, better we, get and we ordered how many? I mean, they were 1200? like- 1,200? Yeah, exactly. And, and at that point, you know, you start to realize that there's there's scale. And then and the company grew and, you know, there, we had to have more employees and then digital. And, and then we started opening stores in other places like LA and London and then Tokyo. So you had all this success and, I mean, we were aware of what opening ceremony was. Another place that you go to New York, got to go check it out. And so when, when we met, I was like, okay- the thing that was on my mind was going to Paris a couple times a year and always going to Colette and liking that they had this curated thing that was always different. And you could buy like some post-it notes for five bucks or you could buy some jewelry for 50,000 bucks. And it was like all in there treated kind of the same, just this very democratic way of thinking about business was, which is so different from how we did things. But the the curation, the sense of discovery, all that was like... How could we do something like that? So that was when it was in my mind when we met. It's like, what if we just kind of gave you this opportunity to curate a thing? You can apply your taste to it. We allow you to be you. And like, as long as you think it's cool. Yeah. And I think you articulated this so clearly with this analogy that I, you know, it's not a profound analogy, but it, it was something that nobody had ever said to me before, which was, I'll give you the keys to the car and you drive. But if you need a, like any, if there's a roadblock, you just let me know. I don't know that anybody had ever explicitly said, I trust you to try to do this thing here and I'm going to give you a platform to do that. I don't know. It was just so thrilling. And I had never been to Seattle. And well, I remember that, that that's was like one of the first of the questions. I said, do I have to move to Seattle? And you were like, well, yeah. And I was like, but I've never been to Seattle. I've never, you know. Yeah. And so I remember coming back, saying, okay, we're going to do this thing. And I feel like I should explain, like, what is, what are you talking about? What is the it? Well, so we, we created this thing called oh, yeah. Pop-In and there was, you know, we started, I don't know, what, a half dozen stores or something and big kind of flagship stores. And every six weeks or so, a whole new theme would come in and you wouldn't even really tell me what the themes were. It's like, <laughs> oh, this is really cool. And then all of a sudden, you know, it would come down and a couple of days later, boom, something else would come up. And they were, there have always been really quite different. Sometimes they're about a certain brand, like, you know, we have a Levi's thing going on right now, or sometimes it's a totally curated thing, like a grocery store and a bunch of little things all over the place or things that maybe we don't typically sell. Maybe some things that feel controversial. I mean, all of it has been done and with such a kind of a cool sense of discovery, it was so inspiring to me that I thought it'd be inspiring to other people. And I was like, you know, we got to make like a star out of Olivia. I mean, she's got such a compelling story. She's such an authentic, talented person. It's infectious. And I think it'll be certainly infectious within our company. But I think customers will really like this. And I think that'll help sell this idea of a curated pop-in shop that, you know, what we ended up doing. I don't, I, I don't know really what your memories are of that, but, you know, so we're hiring you to do this thing, but all of a sudden you're kind of out front. Yeah, and it was a little overwhelming. You know, I don't necessarily consider myself somebody that likes to be in the spotlight. Um, it actually makes me quite uncomfortable. Um, I think I can fake it. Yeah, you're pretty good at it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm good at faking it, but it's not my comfort zone. Um, and immediately after, like, I need to hide in a corner and just, you know, close my eyes. But when I got here... The amount of people who were interested and curious about me, and I don't know if that's because you had sort of planted the seed that there's this 
person coming from New York and she's different because she hasn't grown up with us. I felt an enormous obligation to be as open and participate as much as I could in telling the story of not only who I was, but what I believed in from a retail experience. Yeah. And, and I'm always so grateful for that because whether explicit or not, you sort of said, just give her some space, like let her figure it out, let her figure out how to navigate. Because I think if you had told me like, okay, well, go connect with this person who will help you figure out your financial plans. Go connect with this person who will help you figure out how to get your store plans. I think if you had directed me in that way, it wouldn't have come together in this way where I felt flexible and able to move as much because it would have felt like a big corporate thing trying to do a small thing. Whereas opposed, I, I felt like what we were doing felt honest and natural. And I didn't want the corporateness of what Nordstrom could be to get in the way of that. Right. So how did it make you feel when, you know, because there's articles about you now and, you know, in Vogue magazine and all kinds of publications. I mean, there was because it was an interesting story and the market really loved it. And we we're doing something kind of creative that's a little bit different. So how did that make you feel that you were getting personal attention for this? I mean, in, in some ways, the personal attention, it's awkward. But the way that I looked at it was if through the attention that I was garnering, it was bringing attention to the experience. It was bringing attention to Nordstrom. It was bringing attention to all of the brands and friends and designers and artists that we were trying to bring into Nordstrom and into the space. If I could be the platform to bring awareness to some of the other people that I found credible and amazing and awesome, then I was willing to do that. So to this point about we want people to continue to grow and and, you know, you're an ambitious person. You want to take on more things and you're a curious person. Said, OK, here we go, Olivia. We got another thing for you. We want you to keep working on marketing campaigns and stuff. And we want you to do this thing. And that thing was home. So why don't you talk about what that's <laughs> been like? I mean, home as a category, as an industry, it's always been a part of my insane level of curiosity around retail experiences. Well, see, you know, if I had known about all this kind of retail thing you set up in your house, it makes yeah. total sense how yeah. home was all going to be part of this at a certain point. Yeah, I mean, and you think a lot about, like I had said before, I never considered myself a fashion person. I consider myself a retail environment and experience person. I like putting things together. And part of that is, you know, But fashion. you're such a curator, though. I guess that's part of it. Yes, yeah, part mean, of which it. Which is kind of the nature of what a buyer is a yeah, curator. It, it is about the stuff that's inside of the space, but it's also about the space. It's about the full, like, five sensory, you know, experience that you get. Like, what are you seeing? What are you touching? What does it smell like? What's the music? Like, what's the tactileness of it and the tangibility of it? I love all of that. And, and so I love creating those experiences. So when the home opportunity came up, like, there was no way I was not going to say yes to that. And it felt like such an untapped story that we as Nordstrom could tell our customers. So one of the things, as I'm thinking about this, I mean, because it'd be impossible to put all this in your business card and say, what is your actual job? Another thing you've done is that Nike NXN deal where we, Nike's the biggest vendor we have, but there was an unlock for us to be able to approach this from a fashion perspective and particularly about women. They were super interested in that. And, and, you know, going down to Nike headquarters with you to kind of create this unlock of how we could do a lot more business with them through kind of your vision was such an awesome moment. I tell the story. Like, so we meet with the president of Nike we were at the time and and I'm meeting him for the first time in New York, too. And we're down there in Portland. He's like, OK, Pete Norris. Yeah, OK, nice to meet you. Olivia Kim, my <laughs> daughter follows you on Instagram. So it was like we had this whole thing of making you kind of a, a known person and stuff and amplifying your story. And there was an example where that totally is what worked. That was the catalyst for us to open all these doors because we were bringing something different. You were bringing something different. You're bringing a point of view that they didn't have for themselves. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that Nike experience? I mean, that Nike experience is certainly one of my proudest moments. I mean, Nike, to your point, not only is it, you know, one of our biggest brands huge. here. I mean, you probably remember your first pair of Nikes. I remember my first experience with Nikes. It reaches so many people and, and it connects with so many people in so many emotional ways. So to be able to work with them in a way that felt super authentic to me, you know, I was really coming at it from a, a place of, I love Nike. I've never been able to buy the best shoes in the best colorways because they don't make them in girl sizes. Yeah, I thought that was amazing. It's like they gave you access to the archives so that you could do all these products and Jordans, whatever, yeah. that were always done for men, but in women's sizes and in colorways that you thought were cool. Yes, 
Yes. And they, I mean, they don't do that for anybody. I know. It, it, and it was, it's pretty shocking to think about. Um, actually, our collaboration with Nike is the largest collaboration prop by SKU count that they've ever done. Oh, that they've ever done? Yeah. We were a fashion authority. They're Nike, right? They needed a, a, a female customer. We had the female customer, mm-hmm. but we wanted to be able to tell Nike's story in a different way through a female lens. Right. So there was this common interest around how do we tell a women's her focus story rooted in sneakers, but supported by all of the awesomeness, the high low of what we do, you right. know, the amazing designer, the niche designer of like a Comme des Garçons mixed in there. And then for us to be able to also merchandise Topshop and some beauty brands within the space and, and throw it all in and create this one of a kind experience for her that just felt so different because Nike had never allowed any other retailer to mix and dress mannequins that weren't head-to-toe Nike. Yeah, I think the thing is remarkable is we'd done business with Nike for a long, long time, big business with them. I mean, you talk about a proud moment for you. It was a proud moment for, I think, a lot of us here. And it was fun for me to kind of see that creativity happen. And it continues this day. I mean, I know you're not as literally attached as you were, but you're still kind of attached to a lot of the vision of what we're trying to do there and and their confidence in us kind of through you. Absolutely. And I think if anything, it also has changed Nike's internal perception of their women's business, which I think, you know, while not directly, you know, correlating to us, but when I think about a big company like that and the influence that they have and them to actually take what we shared and what we did with them, the learnings of our customer, the learnings of a female-led experience, and then apply that to their business. You just think about the impact that that could have for women and girls across the world, right? And I think that that's really powerful, that we, you know, little old we, influenced big Nike to think about their women's business differently. I mean, that's amazing. I, I think that that's the biggest takeaway of that. So, I mean, you've, you've accomplished all these great things kind of professionally, and you've, you've done so much for our company. It's been really great. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of you. But I, I want to kind of hear from you in terms of, you know, you're also a real person, too. I mean, you're a mother and you're a <laughs> wife and you got a life and all this stuff. And I, I want to I kind of hear from you in terms of what it's like to be like a woman in business and, and be a mother and all that and, and just all the things that are happening in society. It's hard. It's really hard. You know, I I think being wearing all of those hats, it's it's a constant juggle. And and sometimes you feel like all of those balls are up in the air. And then another the next day, half of those balls are on the ground, rolled under a couch and you can't find them. Um, I think that Nordstrom, I think that there's a lot of common values that I share with the company. And it was one of the things that drew me to to come and work here for so long is is there's this incredible way that you, your family, and a lot of the executives within this company are also real people. You're, you're just very honest. You're approachable. That open door policy that we have in our office, there is a genuine realness to who you are. There's a respect for your family. There's a respect for your time. And I noticed that right away. You know, people leaving the office at 4 o'clock, 4.30, because they've got to get home for their families it was unheard of, you know, in New York. And it, here it was like, you absolutely need to go. Like, you should absolutely get home in time to have dinner with your kids. Um, and that had a profound impact on me, you know, in the last eight years now that I've been here. You know, that encouragement of you absolutely need to prioritize your friends and family. You absolutely need to prioritize your own time and find that balance. I, I, it's really hard to be a mom. It's really hard to be a leader who leads a team across lots of different you know, whether it's pop in or space or home, there's a pressure to constantly always be on and, and, and to always, you know, have the right ideas, to always be making the right decisions. But I also love that within our organization, within our company, I've, I've seen this too. And so I'm trying to emulate this too, is instead of solving the problem for everybody, up pyramid or down pyramid, it's more so posing the question of, well, what would you do in this situation? I've learned how to really collaborate being an outsider coming into the company at first, it felt really cool because I was like, yeah, I'm different, you know? And now I feel I want to talk about how those differences, while they're awesome, I also adopted so much of the culture and that combined with my own uniqueness or, you know, me being me has made me such what I believe to be a much better leader that I don't think I could have gotten had I not been here. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, uh, thanks so much for being part of the podcast, Olivia. That was really fun. And it just, 
reminds me of all the reasons why we brought you in here in the first place. And I'm just so glad that, you know, you've, you found a good home here and have, have had success and you've added so much really to, to our culture, our team. I just want to let you know how much I appreciate that, but it's also super inspiring to me. I mean, this is kind of the fun part of my job. I get all these different things I do, but at the core, what we're doing is, you know, kind of like telling stories, selling things to customers, bringing an authentic point of view, curating, and, you know, that's easy to say, but that stuff's not easy to do. And and you're good at it. And I think you've helped lead in a way that's helped develop that muscle here at Nordstrom to go beyond the transactions. I just want to tell you, you know, I really appreciate the way you lead here and the example you set. So thank you. And thank you. I mean, thanks for letting me do what I get to do. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash Nordy Podcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy, drop us a line and be part of the Nordipod. And make sure to tune in next time for a super fascinating conversation with Andy Dunn, who is the founder of Bonobos, a brand of clothes you may be familiar with that we have sold at Nordstrom over the years. But he's also just recently come out with a book talking about his life as it relates to mental illness. I think the first thing that's worth drawing out is the difference between the identity and the illness. I only learned recently that I'm not bipolar. I have bipolar disorder. And because I was an entrepreneur, I couldn't talk about this. How would I be able to raise capital? How would I be able to attract people? But I guess in a way I've come around to not needing to separate these identities to hide one part of me for the professional benefit and recognize I want to bring my full self to the table. And I wish that for everyone. Like, might we all be so fortunate us to be fully known? It was really a a great conversation. Andy's a great guy, and I think you'll really appreciate his candor, his vulnerability, and really the inspiring story that goes along with his journey. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod. Mm -hmm.